Irresistible revolution. Sunshine Patriots need not apply for this fight against Marxism. Quote, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. That's from Thomas Paine's American Crisis. And today's guest book begins with this quote, and it frames the current domestic situation in America today perfectly. And I'm not embellishing the situation, and neither is today's guest. We are both servants of and sworn defenders of the Constitution of the United States with our lives if necessary. Why is that important for the average American to know? As our guest states in his book, swearing an oath to defend the Constitution is really an affirmation that America was, is, and should remain worth defending. That means the strategy to deconstruct American history and rewrite it to fit the Marxist goal of dividing our people to destroy us from within eliminates the reason for the oath, and we should all be extremely concerned that we have extremists in our military and civilian leaders and military commanders even that support these divisive policies. Without the foundation of the oath of office agreed upon by all members of the military team, we have no team capable of fighting and winning the nation's wars. I'm pleased to welcome former U.S. Space Force Lieutenant Colonel, commander, and now author of his book, Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military, Matt Lohmeyer as today's guest. Matt, my friend, welcome to the Rob Mana Show. Sir, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, so you've never been on my show, so give my audience a quick update on where you're at, to how your family's doing. My folks pray for you. They know who you are, but it's really great to have the opportunity to hear directly from you. Sure, thanks. Overall, we're doing well. Uh, I separated from active duty on the 1st of September this past year and uh, moved my family to Idaho, and we've been enjoying life out here ever since. Um, but uh, as far as what I'm up to these days since separating from active duty, I, I travel around the country uh, and speak about the very things I suppose we'll probably talk about here on your show today. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also setting up my own show or podcast, The Matt Lohmeyer Show. And so if you were to go to my website, you'll see an announcement. It's MatthewLohmeyer.com uh, about that show that's uh, going to be starting, I hope, within the next week or two. And I'm also uh, toying with the idea of actually creating a super PAC. Uh, and I've been in conversations for about a month uh, about that. I've, I'd considered uh, running for office myself a few times uh, as I anticipated my departure from active duty. And uh, timing just wasn't right in my life. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Uh, and I'd really like to support somehow all of those people who are willing to throw their hat in the ring and continue fighting for our liberty. And uh, so I'm trying to maximize the ways in which I'm doing that from where I sit. And potentially that's another avenue to do that. So 
Uh, in addition to those things, I join good people like you on your show uh, to, to address these issues and hopefully educate uh, a broader portion of the population about what we're facing. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic that you're you're doing well and your family's doing well. We're glad to hear that. Uh, uh, we can talk offline about super PACs. Uh, I have that experience and running for office uh, at any time you ever want to. Uh, I One of the things I do is try to mentor, especially veterans that are mm -hmm. interested in uh, being active in politics uh, because nobody really knew how to mentor me when I ran for office the first time. And uh, uh, it was an interesting learning experience. And I, I want to pass those things on to other people. Uh, so I got to ask you the obvious question. What the heck drove you to write this book? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you and I were talking just briefly before we jumped on the air. Um, writing a book I suppose probably for most people isn't something that would uh, either be a natural uh, desire or a line of thought. It wasn't for me. And I had spent time in uh, academia uh, on the Air Force's dollar uh, and done quite a bit of writing there. And uh, that experience, while it kind of tutors you somewhat, uh, it surely didn't make me want to have any kind of an ambition to write a book myself. And so it was circumstances on the ground. Uh, that drove the need or the desire to write a book. Um, I'd gone into command in the summer of uh, 2020. And uh, shortly after arriving in command, I saw an activism, a political activism, a critical social justice activism, to be more specific, uh, at the ground level at my own base uh, that I recognized as having Marxist roots. And that's something I had studied quite a bit. And when I saw that uh, and giving feedback to my chain of command and even filing a formal complaint with the inspector general's office of the Space Force uh, and awaiting for some kind of an adjudication uh, of that complaint that would hopefully uh, change uh, what I was seeing at the ground level uh, and being disappointed in those outcomes, I was compelled to write this uh, book, which I spent my, my free time uh, while I was a commander. Uh, which, uh, as you're aware, you don't have a lot of. Uh, but I, I spent evenings and or very early mornings and weekends and took some of my own personal leave to write that book and uh, did that through the uh, election season, uh, the 2020 election season, and then published the book in May. But I, I wanted to describe not only uh, how beautiful it is, that, uh, how beautiful our country's founding values are and founding philosophy is, but also kind of tease out the history of, of Marxist revolutionary ideology uh, as well, which I do through the better part of the, I guess, the middle part of the book. And then with that back, that background uh, or uh, ideological underpinning, if you will, then talk about what it is that we're seeing specifically within the military, uh, because without understanding both the beauty of our own history and uh, foundational values, and what tries to tear it down, on the other hand, a Marxist mm -hmm. ideology, you can't really fully appreciate just how dangerous some of this activism is that we're seeing both in broader American society, but also, unfortunately, that's being parroted by our young service members as they're encouraged by our senior leaders in the Defense Department yeah. by their own statements. Uh, and so just to point a finger and criticize uh, senior leaders was never something I was interested in. In fact, I always tried to be respectful of our senior leaders even despite their uh, missteps. 
but you can't just point a finger and accuse them of wrongdoing without helping helping tease out some of the ideological underpinnings for the reader or the viewer, because it's only then that they'll appreciate just how rotten things are becoming. Um, yeah, yeah, I, re- I really like I really like the the way you constructed the story uh, in the book. Uh, and one of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I think it's important uh, that you you spent a little time on two things. The first was the sixteen nineteen project, mm-hmm. explaining it. Uh, uh, and uh, and putting it in and why it's important uh, to understand what that document is, who wrote it, and why. Uh, and, and how do we, you know, what I want you to talk about now is why did you spend time on that particular project uh, for our viewers? Uh, but more importantly, why is that project being accepted by some in our society, our American society? In yeah, your opinion. yeah. Um, boy, there, there sure is a lot we could talk about here. And so let me share just a couple of things. Um, mm-hmm. At my own base, uh, one of the things that we had seen that came from our base commander was a documentary. It's one of a number of things that we were asked to watch in preparation for what we called down days, mm-hmm. in which we'd, we'd put aside our training responsibilities for a particular mission, which at our base was, and what I was doing was space-based missile warning. And we were supposed to come to the table prepared to talk about systemic racism in society. And one of the things we were asked to watch was a documentary, the talking points for which came largely out of the New York Times 1619 project. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, people don't know where where these talking points are coming from. They just know they're ugly, they're unsettling, they seem to conflict with what they've come to believe uh, about our country and maybe sworn an oath to defend. And so I wanted to actually go back. It's actually, it wasn't easy for me uh, the first time I tried this to get my hands on the original publication of the New York Times 1619 project. Mm-hmm. I went to libraries, emailed people asking if I could get my hands on this and actually had a, a PDF that was sent to me of the original magazine in which it was roughly hundred pages, if I remember correctly. Right. This, this series of essays about our founding and about our history was, was put in print few years ago. Mm-hmm. I went through all of that. I was looking for some specific items in there. Uh, if our base commanders, for example, might be pushing talking points from this narrative, I want to understand who it is that was the lead essayist, Nicole Hannah-Jones, mm-hmm. uh, which I talk about in my book. It's unsettling. Yeah. Uh, she, she did a, I don't want to call it a study uh, abroad or a kind of research internship over in Cuba to study their economic and healthcare systems, if that tells you <laughs> even just the, the, the beginning point that, that where, where she's coming from. Yeah. But I went through all of those essays. In addition to try and learn about what they were saying, I was specifically interested as a commander in the armed forces looking for references to the Declaration and the Constitution. Right. Okay? And what I found in that series of essays over that 100 pages was nothing but derogatory comments about our founding documents and our founders. And then you begin to see that's the foundation upon which their narrative of American history unfolds. It's the evils of the founders and the founding documents and the founding philosophy. And so I thought this is really important to tee up at the very beginning of my book. I'd like to help, I thought first of those that I led in my own unit. And then by extension, of course, all of our service members. I thought you need to understand that there is this thing 
called the New York Times 1619 Project yeah. that is now shaping rhetoric, political rhetoric across the country and in the media and even in the military, unfortunately. Uh, Black Lives Matter at School, which is an organization, specifically Black Lives Matter at School, had got the New York Times 1619 Project pamphlets into, at the time I was writing the book, over 4,000 schools in the, in the nation, and now that's grown even more. Mm-hmm. And once people begin to see where the talking points were coming from and who was generating those talking points and what their purpose was, which was to divorce the American from their values even further right. so that they could then buy into a kind of an alternative narrative of American history, uh, it it's becomes much easier for an American to take a step back, put up their hands and say, now, hold on a second. Uh, am I really willing to consider this alternative uh, reality? that's being offered to me and it it causes people some pause, which I was hoping, uh, and then to tee up for them, to reintroduce them to uh, the greatness of the American ideal. And uh, that's important for our service members to appreciate if they're gonna swear an oath to defend it with their life potentially. Uh, And uh, I've had a number of service members reach out thanking me by email since then saying, hey, I had no clue that thing even existed. And I really like how you've teed that up in opposition to or shown how it is in opposition to our founding values. And uh, once you grab a hold of the greatness of the American ideal, it's, uh, it's uh, I'll say, you're reluctant to put it down because it's God-inspired. It's, uh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, you start to realize just how nasty uh, an ideology we're up against. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the effort of the sixteen nineteen project, uh, in my opinion, is to deconstruct America. Uh, it's the it's the uh, it's not even the opening salvo. It's the broadside after the mm-hmm. opening salvos, in my opinion, uh, because the New York Times published it, and the New York Times is such a respected or used to be right. uh, respected publication across the entire world, uh, and and to deconstruct. The American value in the founding of America, as I said in my opening, and as you point out in your book, it, it, it unlinks those of us that took the oath to the Constitution of the United States from, from the, the fact that America was, is, and should be something worth defending. You know, right. I think you put that brilliantly in there. I had not seen it written down that way before, and I'm going to use it because it communicates the, the issue so clearly, especially from a military perspective, uh, because, you know, if, if we're part of a team uh, and, and the team is divided in such a way as, as what we see in the 1619 Project, then the team can't survive conflict, military conflict, combat. You cannot right. survive that uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, being in combat, it's an all, uh, it's an all on the team. Uh, and if somebody's not on the team, it becomes really apparent really fast. And depending on the situation, people die. That's right. Uh, really fast. It, it, and we just can't afford to have a military that's under that construct and believing in those talking points. Uh, well, that's that's what's precisely um, what led me to start to give feedback and file a formal complaint about what I was seeing in the first place was the divisive nature of all of this. Um, Mm -hmm. Even people with really good intentions, uh, let's say a base commander or a senior military leader who think they're going to do 
the service member a favor by helping them confront some of our evils of history, let's say. Mm-hmm. But couched in terms of the diversity, inclusion, and equity industry, which is rooted in Marxism, you 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 start to prepare the soil for division. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bad. It's, it's what I'm saying is it's a bad starting place is to talk about how evil America was from its inception, because one, it's not true. And so you're starting from a false premise in the first place. And if you get some of your service members to buy into that, even if it's a small percentage of them, there's instantly a a fracture in the force. Yeah. Uh, Whereas every service member has signed up and sworn an oath to defend the constitution, presumably because they believe in the goodness of our country and are therefore willing to voluntarily put skin in the game to defend it, you instantly have this fracture where people start wondering whether or not it's worth defending. Mm. Uh, that's simply not the kind of division you can have uh, in an arm in your armed forces and maintain your lethality, maintain yeah. the kind of good order, discipline, or morale that's expected of troops. Uh, you know, I just have people, I don't want to really go down this path, but in the, in the past week, we've seen a bunch of headlines about Russia and Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've had service members reaching out to me in exasperation saying, I'm not sure exactly what's going on over there, but I'm not sure I believe in the idea of being deployed in support of this conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. That it sounds like we're going to be deployed in support of. And yeah, a part of the problem that has, that has caused, you see, even if it was a good idea for us to get involved in that, um, our military leaders have done our, our service members a disservice by focusing on wholly other things yeah. in the past year or two, uh, mm-hmm. like global climate change, COVID-19, and, and systemic racism. And so when push comes to shove, if we're going to ask our service members to go engage in war somewhere, that's been the last thing on their mind is what's happening with Ukraine and Russia, because our service, our, our service leaders aren't teaching our service members about those things. They're teaching them about the evils of white supremacy, for example. I mean, that's what they've been hearing our senior leaders testifying about before the Congress. So boy, our, our priorities have been so misplaced that when push comes to shove and they're actually called upon to do something, potentially, mm-hmm. uh, what we've been focused on has zero bearing upon the conflict at hand. And it doesn't matter what country we, we get involved in, all the things we've been focused on that are ideologically based fade away into nothing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really disappointing, uh, and uh, it's scary. I'll just say it. I'll say it. Look, you know, people see, see retired colonel and all that stuff, and, oh, this guy can't be afraid of anything. Well, that's not true. This is a scary situation, folks, uh, because we have created this, this context that, uh, uh, that puts us in jeopardy as a people. Uh, and puts our our servicemen and women in jeopardy uh, because you you can't be focused. Let's put it this way: I started in this business in the military at age seventeen. I grew up in it as an Air Force brat, and I retired at age forty nine, thirty two plus years uh, as a colonel. Uh, and I spent ninety nine percent of my time first learning to be an expert in my job and what it meant to achieve the mission I was assigned, uh, and two learning and studying what it takes to survive uh, and to act appropriately in combat because it's, it's, like, uh, it's like a car accident. 
or, or an aircraft emergency. You don't know how you're going to react until it happens to you. And the better you are trained, uh, the, the more reliably you're going to react and respond to the situation. It, it's a simple human nature thing. And if we're focused, like you just mentioned, on all these other things, which is true, that's what's been happening the last two, three years, uh, then our forces aren't ready. And a lot of us that are retired have been saying that, uh, especially senior officers and senior enlisted, that, that our readiness is devolving very rapidly to below the line. And it was already below the line in certain cases uh, because of uh, overuse in the mm -hmm. Afghan and Iraq wars. Uh, but now from a philosophical and a readiness from a, from a, uh, uh, from the soul perspective, you know, from, from the ability to withstand, uh, combat and withstand, uh, major conflict. Uh, I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned. And, you know, I have a son, uh, I've had three sons in the military. I left the military in 2011. Uh, and, uh, we'll get back to that in a second. Cause I got a question about your chaplain experience mm -hmm. as a squadron commander. Uh, but, uh, uh, but my, my last son that was on active duty left the air force. He was a, he's an enlisted guy, jet engine mechanic, really good at it. Mm -hmm. Loved his job, was a brand new frontline supervisor, staff sergeant, seven level, loved it. But he called me in, in June of this year and said, dad, I'm going to terminate my, uh, I'm going to get out at the end of my enlistment, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, here in August. And I said, why, Colin? He said, well, uh, in the extremist, uh, 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 the extremist stuff that the Secretary of Defense made the Air Force do and the services do last summer, yeah. uh, he said, uh, one, the last thing I was required to do in the training uh, was lead my team in an exercise that uh, at the end of the exercise, it highlighted that, that white males are the most privileged of all uh, and that everybody else is way back here and it did it publicly. Uh, and it was embarrassing to the people on my team and to me, since he's a white male, mm -hmm. it happens to be a white male. My, my stepson is, uh, and, uh, he said, that's a joke. That's not how you build a team. You don't show your people, uh, and focus on the fact that, that their differences and their backgrounds are keeping them from being successful. That's right. Uh, and he said, and he just said, he said, it's just a joke. And then, and then over the year of the COVID response policies, he just said, I'm, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he's, get, he's out and he's doing jet engine mechanic work uh, and, uh, and he's got a good job. But, but it's sad that a kid like that, a young man like that, who probably would have stayed till E9 because right. uh, he loved that job, uh, probably would have stayed till E9, looks at the situation and goes, this is crazy. And, you know, he even went into the Air Force Reserves uh, yeah. after he got out because he wanted to continue to serve. But the reserves don't have as apparently as much of the craziness going on at this point right. yet. Uh, so he decided he'd stay in the reserves uh, and be ready. But it's just sad that young men and women like that are feeling that way and we're losing them. Uh, well, we we're are. Some. We're having both retention problems. Mm -hmm. uh, some of some of those retention problems are the result of this kind of ideological push that's occurring uh, that mm -hmm. people have been sensing for, for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, some of that retention problem now is um, directly of the DOD's own making with its COVID policies. And there, are, there have been those who are now choosing 
to accept the outcome of being uh, pushed out of the military rather than have a forced uh, 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 mRNA uh, gene experimentation vaccine. Right. Uh, but but there are there are in addition to those retention problems, recruitment problems that we won't necessarily fully understand or appreciate uh, for another year or more. Yeah. Uh, we're already starting to see reports that uh, some of these services aren't going to be meeting um, their milestones for recruitment. Uh, and of course, mm -hmm. that's why the, the Army, for example, has uh, discussed uh, offering enlistment bonuses uh, for si signing. I think it was the Army, if I'm not mistaken, $50,000 yeah. enlistment yeah. bonuses. $50,000 for a six-year enlistment. And it's yeah. like, well, you know, there's people that still want to serve regardless of that money. And so they're going to serve. And there are people who simply aren't interested anymore. And I don't think the money is going to help them. So all that we're going to be doing right. is throwing a bunch of money at those who are likely already going to be joining the service anyway. And we've done the same thing with pilots for at least the past decade. Yeah. Um, so we throw money at problems that don't need to be fixed with money. Uh, they can be fixed in other ways, potentially. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm very concerned about what we're what we're going to see happen with recruitment and retention in the years ahead. And uh, I, I, unfortunately, it's of the senior leader's own making. Uh, and frankly, the Biden administration. I never said that while I was on active duty. Uh, I, don't, I didn't like the idea of being political on active duty. And ironically, it was for alleged political partisanship that I was fired, rel relieved of my command. Mm. But anyone that worked for me knew I just wasn't Partisan. I didn't care if people were Democrat, Republican. I didn't yeah. care what candidates they supported. I wrote a book about Marxism. And that shouldn't be politically partisan. Right. Uh, it just doesn't matter what people's political affiliation is or what candidates they support. But it does matter that our military is being politicized. It just so happens it's a it's a left leaning politicization at the moment that's really offensive to a, a good portion of our armed forces. And it should be offensive. It should be offensive to a good portion of our population overall, quite honestly, Matt, because it, uh, you know, I, I would be as, as appalled if it was somebody that was right-leaning uh, right. that, that was trying to politicize our military because it's, uh, uh, it, it, it just shouldn't be. Uh, it shouldn't be. I never, I never talk politics uh, or much religion of my own, you know, uh, pushing my own thoughts on religion mm -hmm. uh, the whole time I was in the military because I was taught very early on as a, as a 17 year old teenager right. by my dad first, who was a master sergeant. And then by the master sergeants that brought me up <laughs> and said, Hey, you know, just stay away from that stuff while you're on active duty and you'll be fine. Uh, and that right. was, and that's because it should be a political, uh, you know, and your book, I've, I've read your book and, I didn't find a partisan thing about it, you know, yeah, quite my, frankly. I mean, there's no no partisanship at all in there. As a matter of fact, as, as somebody that whose dad fought in the Cold War, I fought in the Cold War, my brother fought in the Cold War, uh, I, I think it's a good thing that you published it. It ought to be in every war college and air command and staff college and squadron officer school and, see, you know, enlisted PME uh, class that's being taught. Uh, in the United States, that's one of the books that ought to be read. Uh, mm. Quite frankly, maybe someday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, if I'm ever in charge of anything again, or I know somebody that is, I'm going to try to do it uh, because because it's not a partisan book. It's about what's happening and what's happening based on what we've seen happen in history uh, with this thing called Marxism. Uh, 
Uh, and, uh, and, and the Democrat Party, unfortunately, is full of them, is full That's of them. True. And their policies, they're, more importantly, the policies they're pushing, uh, uh, even into the military, has a basis in Marxism. Let me touch on this question real quick. I, I don't think it'll take you long, to, but you, you juxtaposed, I, I believe, that's the way I took it anyway, the 1776 commission that President Trump uh, yeah. appointed, and they put a report out just before he left office up against the 1619 project just a bit. And I think, I think to follow that flow of, you, have to, you had to describe what's wrong uh, and, then, and then show people again you know, here, here's what America's founding values were. And I thought, the, I read the, I got a copy of the report right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read it, uh, just as I did read the 1619 Project uh, it, when it came out. Uh, and the 1776 report seemed, you know, apolitical, mm-hmm. right on along the values of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, all of the thought that you know, the enlightened thought that went into those uh, and then the efforts throughout the history to achieve what Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address that were dedicated to, uh, you know, that all meant to the thought that all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. And we were conceived in liberty. Uh, I mean, that's what I took from it. I, I didn't see it as anything other than that. Uh, and, right. but it's got President Trump's name on it. so That's a big problem. Uh, and you mentioned it. <laughs> and you, you actually wrote quite a bit about it in your book. Uh, the, I saw it, too, when it was out, when it came out. I mean, it, the thing's been squashed uh, yeah. by, the, by the regime media mm-hmm. uh, and those kind of things. But it's also been attacked by academics. Uh, and, I, again, I go back and I read it, and I could obviously see the flaws in the historical facts in the 1619 Project. Right. And, and when I read the 1776 Commission's report, I didn't see those factual flaws That's right. in that. They, it, it was very facts-based and, uh, uh, and taken from primary documents and, and, and writings and those kind of things. So yeah, uh, you know, tell folks a little bit about that that may not have even heard of the 1776. Well, as I mentioned, you know, the 1619 Project spends 100 pages uh, spreading what historians on both sides of the political spectrum have simply dismissed as ideology, not history. You have on, in contrast, the 1776 project, which was produced in very short order. I mean, like we're talking a month's time. These guys had one or two meetings virtually. Mm-hmm. These, uh, these scholars uh, come together, presidents of universities, scholars. So they're well-respected people who have done respectful, respected work. Uh, came together and put together something that's not even quite half the length, I don't think, of the New York Times uh, 1619 project. Mm -hmm. And there's far more valuable information in that rather benign telling of overarching, the overarching uh, picture of events in in American history in the 1776 project or report. Mm -hmm. Then if the 1619 project authors had spent a thousand more pages on the same beating the same drum that they had in producing their 100-page series of essays, they couldn't have come close to communicating as much good information as was in that, that shorter, much shorter 1776 project. And the fact is, the moment that they produced that effort, the 1776 commission put produced that effort and puts that information out there instantly, you'll look, it wasn't the information that was demonized by the left 
or by the producers of the 1619 project. It was the character of the individuals who had written it, who, from what I can tell, actually have upstanding character. Um, but it was an attack. It was an ad hominem attack on the individuals who were involved in the project. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> frankly, their attacks were baseless. Uh, and it wasn't meant to be an overarching comprehensive history of America that was produced in the 1776 report. It was meant to be an introduction to the idea of America. And uh, from, from in my view, uh, not as an expert, I don't know what that even means anymore, the way we throw around that term, but as someone who's taken great interest in studying American history, it's just a, it's a great work as a basic introduction to the idea of America's greatness. And uh, it's not um, unduly biased. It doesn't, as its critics have claimed, um, gloss over the hard elements of American history uh, or the unfortunate aspect. It's not intended to cover all of that. There's plenty of good history books that are written about all of those things. Yeah. And uh, frankly, uh, there's value in studying our difficulties in American history. But when you make them the primary, primary focus of American history with the intent of demonizing uh, and tearing down American history, that's when that's when that focus becomes unhealthy. And I don't think the scholars that worked on the 1776 uh, project had any intention of, of dispensing with the difficulties we face, but only learning from those things and building a better, more beautiful future based on what we've learned throughout American history. So I'd still recommend it. I've thought about this now since publishing my book for well over mm -hmm. half a year. I've, I've re-looked at some of the some of the, uh, the presentation of material in that 1776 project, even as uh, recently, I think it was yesterday. And yeah. I just think, you know, they did a good service trying to combat mm. what is clearly an ideological Marxist ideological push for history. Um, and uh, we need more efforts like theirs. Uh, and those people continue to remain involved in one way, shape or another uh, yeah. to, to try and educate Americans about the truth about American history. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, and I, I appreciated your your uh, section in that on that because I haven't seen a lot of writing. I, obviously, I've read it. I haven't done a lot of writing on it. I did some initial articles, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, but it's it's a, it's a great piece of work. You you, you kind of touched on something that I'm not sure jumps out at the average reader in the book, and, it, and that is that. You know, we spilled a lot of blood and treasure mm -hmm. exposing racist ideas and the idea of white supremacy and all that in the Civil War uh, so that we could get to a country from a law perspective of one of, of, of civil rights. Uh, but it took us 100 years, even after we killed 600,000 of us, to, to achieve equality, uh, in a sense, after the Civil War, uh, that that dedicated to that idea that everybody's created equal. Uh, we even, we even killed ourselves over it. And then we spent a hundred years of back and forth and fighting over Jim Crow law and civil rights. And finally got to the civil rights, uh, legislation that was passed in the sixties and did away with segregation and, uh, and all those things and, and everything. But it seems that, that the uh, and this caught my eye because you're the first person I, I, I've seen put it in a book. Uh, it it seems you said it seems that we're now uh, we've repackaged those ideas and we're trying to sell it to ourselves as right. That's my own phrasing, but that's what right. I that's the message I got uh, when I read that part of the book, and I'm like, you know, that's a that's an interesting way to put it because it's true. 
It's mm-hmm. true. I mean, I see critical race theory. Crit, critical race theory is just critical theory that came out of That's Frankfurt right. School, which is Marxist based. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- those are all theories of division to divide a population to conquer it, really, uh, That's right. and, and make it eat itself from within. Uh, and I, th- I believe, as you, I think, do, based on your book, uh, believe that that's what's happening now. But that packaging from Ibrahim Kendi, uh, uh, the lady that wrote the Bright Privilege book, you know. Robin D'Angelo. Uh, yeah, uh, good old D'Angelo, uh, and, uh, which is on a lot of reading lists in academies and those kind of places, on general officers and admirals' that's reading right. lists. It's unbelievable. Uh but we need to know about it how, and that it's wrong. But uh, so that, that, that is really a repackaging of racism and supremacism. You know, Thomas Sowell, uh, I had for the longest time, um, there was this website that I had found uh, and it was like top, my top 20 favorite Thomas Sowell quotes of all time. And whoever mm-hmm. picked those quotes did such a good job. I kept that, that window up on my phone for months and I referenced mm-hmm. several of those, but there was... One of those quotes uh, that Thomas Sowell, economist Thomas Sowell, had had said at some point, I don't know what book it came from, but he said, racism is only kept alive by race hustlers and politicians who, who profit from keeping it alive. Oh, he said, racism is not dead, but it's on life support in this country. And then he said, you know, it's kept alive by these politicians and race hustlers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's about right. Um, it has become antithetical to the American value system. And frankly, it has, in my view, since its inception. But it takes a long time for a nation to change its culture and view of something. And so there was a split always early on. Um, And so I think that's I think Thomas Sowell is correct about that. I think that largely speaking, even though racism will always exist, it's antithetical to American values. Uh, it, It wouldn't be it isn't necessarily even a permanent feature of of American culture were it not for those who somehow profit by keeping that narrative alive. And that's exactly what we see taking place at the moment uh, over the past couple of years. It's been what race has been weaponized in this country uh, for political advantage. Uh, oh, it's, it's terribly unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And what really bothers me is that as time has gone on, you know, I mean, I talk about it and identify this, this craziness that you do. Other, I mean, lots of people much bigger than me, uh, I've written books about it. Uh, you know, uh, you've done a great job with yours, especially uh, to focus it on what it's going to do and what it is doing to the U S armed forces, uh, and those kind of things. Uh, but we still see action being taken to do things like segregate and, right. and saying segregating people, uh, is good, you know, mm-hmm. and saying, uh, that, justice system for one skin color should be different than a justice system for another skin, skin, skin color. I mean, those are actually, those are actions that are being taken. Well, let me give you one example being. of that. Um, and, and I, I mentioned this in my book, I'll be brief in sharing it. Yeah. One of the guided reading groups or study groups that I participated in at my base uh, we read a book called So You Want to Talk About Race by an author named Igeoma Oluo. And there's a discussion guide in the back of the book for whomever it is that is going to be the facilitator of a discussion on race using Oluo's book. Mm-hmm. And the guidance that's given to the, to the facilitator, even in our case, an active duty officer facilitator, 
was that if white people need to center their feelings during the discussion, they're to separate themselves from the body who's having the discussion so that people of color don't have to share their burden. Uh, that kind of rhetoric is just so disgusting to the, your average yeah. American, and it's certainly disgusting to the American service member. And so when that's recommended as a book that should be read in preparation for a discussion on the base, instantly there's a division that's created. There's, there's some small part of the population that for some reason takes to the book but by and large, everyone everyone else thinks, why on earth are we reading this? And what does it have to do with uh, my mission here at this base? I mean, bringing this back to our how it affects our, our mission. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you start to have resentment that's spread between people. Uh, not That is not a naturally occurring uh, psychological phenomenon in our, in our armed forces as, as race, identity, political division. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's in fact something that you can inject with these kinds of books. That's, I mean, that's why the American people reacted so, um, so emotionally when they heard the testimony of Admiral Michael Gilday, for example, testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee and the House Armed Services Committee, saying that he was trying, he was trying to defend the idea that he had Ibram Kendi's "How to Be an Anti-Racist" on his reading list for sailors. Yeah, and when he was when he was essentially poked in the chest by people like Senator Tom Cotton. And others, how can you how can you justify this? He nevertheless tried to justify it, and he had quotes read to him uh, in that hearing from the book that are just appalling to our senses. And yet he tried to defend it. I, I just mm. don't quite understand that. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, we've seen a lot of strange things coming out of our senior leaders. Like I yeah. want to understand white rage right. <laughs> when it comes to January sixth, and it didn't have a damn thing to do with it. Quite frankly. That's right. Uh, and, uh, uh, Millie needs to go. Strange. That's my, that's Rob's opinion. <laughs> I, I hope he's embarrassed by that. You know, I really hope he thinks, yeah. why did I say that? And he, you, you uh, hope because it, it would, it would at least indicate he's got some sanity that, and he hasn't uh, lost it. But I mean, there's some, that, meme, there's some pretty creative meme makers out there. I'm yeah. sure <laughs> some of those are getting to his phone. I'm sure. <laughs> And, and you know what? It's good that we can laugh about it, but it's a very serious business That's when you're right. talking about the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he needs to be looking at those memes so he understands exactly how much of a foot he put in his mm -hmm. mouth. Uh, more like his head up, as you know what, yep. is what, uh, what I believe. But uh, the uh, So you talk, once you get through those two portions of the book, uh, then you get into you know the real big concerning part for me as a professional officer uh, to this day, and that is what uh, is happening to the armed forces and the culture of the armed forces. Talk about your experience with this chaplain, this base chaplain that came to see you shortly after you took command of your squadron. Yeah. I found that story very compelling because when I left the Air Force, I left uh, the September 1st is when I drove out. I was a wing commander uh, at, at Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico. So I left on September 1st, and I was very close to my chaplain's office. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, the, the uh, senior chaplain there uh, at the time I left was, uh, was one, of the, one of the officers I was mentoring to go on to be senior leader material. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I think he's in 06 now. But, but 
he sent me a letter two weeks after I left, signed by the chief of staff, and said, commanders can no longer talk about religious capacity, uh, mm-hmm. religious items in meetings, uh, et cetera. And even, you might even think about not going to church on base at the chapel and those kind of things. Only the chaplains can do that. And when I saw the mm-hmm. letter, I was like, well, I'm glad I retired when I did because I would have had to resign over that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because every staff meeting I had as a wing commander and a vice wing commander had 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 a piece from the chaplain in it, but also commanders and mm-hmm. uh, and senior enlisted folks would be there and were free to talk about uh, any concerns. Uh, right. You know. So, and I never said anything to anybody because I did. I thought it was good. You know, any type of thinking uh, that gets you outside of the confines of, especially in the military, outside of the confines of the military construct is good it stirs innovation and 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 more empathy for people and and winning in the military and combat is about people i think you know that and i know that but a lot of people That's don't right. realize that uh so so when i read the story i hearkened back to that letter and i'm like wow things really did go bad because that was 2011 hmm. and you're right. you're talking about 2020 yep. correct when you had this experience, talk about That's that right. experience a little bit, Matt. Well, I'll say here something that I said to the chaplain short, uh, shortly after, or or while I was having this. Um, I suppose it was an ongoing dialogue with the chaplain, but there's no greater advocacy of uh, and and supporter of the chaplaincy and the role of the, uh, for the chaplaincy than me as a commander. Uh, I would love and welcome a chaplain into our unit and love and welcome for my young service members to participate in uh, events at which the, the chaplain or the chaplaincy uh, and, uh, and helpers from the, from the, from the chapel were present. Um, none of that was ever an issue. I, of course, I'm a supporter of the chaplaincy, but what, what was happening, uh, I had just shown up in command and uh, this, this very kind chaplain, uh, and he genuinely was. He's a friendly guy. Um, he's friendly to everyone, as I suppose you'd expect a chaplain to be. Showed up in my office to introduce himself. And when he came in to introduce himself, he explained that he'd recently been given uh, his own office in one of the, my fellow squadrons. The fellow squadron commander had, had carved out an office space for the chaplain, and he was saying that the new chapel policy was that he would not have an office in or be working out of the chapel, but instead would embed in the operational unit. And he wanted to talk with me about that and giving my service members his Race in America lecture series to help us talk about systemic racism and how we can overcome it. Uh, that was my first introduction. That all came out within probably the first two or three minutes of chatting with this friendly chaplain. And I expressed naturally some hesitation at what he was offering. I said, well, uh, I'd like to schedule a meeting and sit down with you and talk with you about um, what it is that you're proposing to give in this lecture series. Um, and so we did that. In fact, I um, had a, a meeting scheduled. It was probably several weeks later that I sat down with that chaplain. We had probably an hour and 15 minute conversation, if I'm not mistaken, maybe an hour and 30 minutes. Uh, but we got into some more depth and what it was that he was proposing we talk about as a unit. Again, I'm an ops unit. I do space-based missile warning. 
uh, I'm happy to have the chaplain somehow integrate into my unit, but he needs to be there and support all of our service members. And he doesn't need to be an instrument of political ideology within my ops unit. And I explained to him that what I was hearing from him sounded to me an awful lot like political ideology. I asked him, what do you mean by systemic racism? He, he said, we need to fix systemic racism. I said, explain that to me. What is systemic racism to you? Uh, now, these were buzzwords that people were throwing around in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. And that, that's when I took command was a few months after that. And so he hemmed and hawed for a minute because he was uncomfortable with my question. I pressed him further. I said, I'd like you to answer my question. And um, I'm not exaggerating when I say his answer was uh, basically all whites are racist. That was his answer. Uh, and if, it, if that's not a direct quote, I'm probably only one word off. And I told him I didn't believe that. And that wasn't a problem that my service members have. And I didn't believe it was a problem we had in America. I also told him that political ideology wasn't welcome in my squadron. And um, he seemed really bewildered at my response. It was really surprising to me just how offensive uh, my, my opposition uh, was. And he told me he's heard about commanders like me, but had never met one. Uh, and to be honest, you know, I don't think the guy meant any offense by that. He's just wearing his emotions on his sleeve. Uh, but the fact, the fact is, um, he was basically telling me, look, I've heard there's people like you who actually are part of this problem. Uh, and I simply didn't think I'd be running into any of any, any commanders like you at our base. Um, but we had a very hard conversation for about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, I was very brutally honest with him, as kindly as I know how to be, given what I heard him saying, um, and told him I, I expect him to be there as a confidential reporting source uh, for all of my airmen, regardless of their, their race, their political affiliation, their religion. Uh, and I want them comfortable being able to go to him as a chaplain for any of their concerns, needs, regardless of what the topic was, and that one of my major concerns was that giving his lecture series that he was talking about, about solving a race in America problem, uh, was going to alienate a certain part of my unit. And he said he didn't believe that would be a problem. I said he was wrong. Um, and uh, so we got off to a really, we got off to a rough start and we were kindly to one another from that day forward. Uh, mm -hmm. But there was all tension, of course, uh, and I invited him to events we were doing. He would come, he would pray at the events that we were doing. And um, I also heard from my own service members, uh, uh, some a couple of black airmen that worked for me, that he was holding minority-only uh, lectures to discuss this race in America problem and how they can somehow continue to work with the whites uh, in the unit despite their own prejudices. <laughs> and wow. I thought, man, this is not helpful. This is just not helpful. And and so, you know, I, I had a really good rapport with my own service members in my unit. And so they were pretty frank with me about what they were hearing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I got some good insight on, on you know, this, this good airman uh, that I knew really well and loved. And I think he loved and respected me as a commander. He, he was telling me he had very mixed emotions about what he was hearing over there in the chapel. Um, and he wasn't sure how to take it. And he, he said things like, I wasn't raised to believe these things, but but I'm learning these things both from the base commander and the chaplain. Uh, and that's, that's problematic for a commander when the focus starts to be on political ideology and narratives about American history and not whatever our mission is. And yeah. so I shared this, for example, with 
the commander of the Space Force. I shared some of these interactions with, and I, I expressed my concern and I was thanked for bringing this to his attention. Uh, said, these are problems we absolutely cannot have. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, it was uh, very shortly after having that conversation that President Trump issued an executive order on the 22nd of September, uh, banning the use of critical race theory language in our federal agencies to include the uniformed services. Now, I don't know that my, my input had any bearing on President Trump's decision to issue an executive order. I think he was getting plenty of feedback from all corners yeah. of different federal agencies. But I, I'd like to think that, you know, one person's voice can, in fact, sometimes can, in fact, make a difference and sometimes does. And um, so I'd encourage our service members, if you're seeing something that doesn't look right, or if there's discrimination that's taking place, you need to speak up. And uh, I think your chain of command, by and large, does want to support you uh, as much as they can uh, when you bring those those concerns to them. Uh, whether or not they're crippled by the climate of fear that we built for ourselves is an entirely different question. Do you, do you think that the uh, service environment uh, for those service members who might be uh, seeing things that they think they should point out, uh, has ch but they're chilled, uh, and there's really not that much reporting going on from well, their perspective. Do you think that's happening? No, you know, my sense at the moment is that um, our service members are increasingly becoming willing to stand the ground and speak up and to try and do it respectfully and to say, you know, I don't like where this is headed. It doesn't matter if it's about vaccines. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. what it is, but... I think just in the face of the politicization of the military writ large, I think there yeah. are an increasing number of people who are willing to take a stand and say, no, not on my watch. This isn't what I signed up for. And the reason I think that is because I hear from a number of these, these people. Now, whether or not they're doing so collectively at any given base is a different question. Maybe they yeah. feel like they're standing alone. But uh, let, me, mm -hmm. let me hint at something that's, that I'm aware of that's going on that I'm, I'm really hoping to share more about on my own show in, in about mm -hmm. a week. Um, and without mentioning specifics, I'll say there are literally hundreds of pilots across all branches of the military who have been meeting together uh, for a number of months now trying to determine how it is that they can make a collective stand against what they feel are draconian policies in regards to the COVID mandates. And I know that's not necessarily surprising news. We've had SEALs doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. But we already have a pilot shortage in, in, across our, our branches of the military, for example. Yeah. And so when you've got potentially hundreds of these pilots who face a penalty of separation from the military without their pension because of their decision, uh, especially as we contemplate going to war, for example, or committing forces to a region, any region, uh, mm -hmm. We've, we've unnecessarily imposed uh, added risk on the force and, and, and potentially greatly compromised our own readiness uh, over yeah. policy decisions that were unnecessary. And these pilots know it, and they're in a position of strength. And so there's going to be more information about that coming out. Oh, good. I look forward to watching that show. Yeah. I, I look forward to watching that. that uh, uh, make sure <laughs> I'll make sure I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at your website, get signed you up. Got it. I'll, because, send, I'll uh, send it to you. Because uh, I'm, I'm on an organization, uh, I'm on a task force as part of an organization called the Stop Vax Passports mm, yeah. uh, Task Force. And uh, one of the webinars that I've been one of the panelists on, I, I talk about the only study uh, 
really by the GAO, the service members, uh, about a vaccine program. It was the anthrax program and the effect on aviators in the Air National Guard and Air Force Reserve. Uh, it, uh, you know, with the pulmonary and cardio issues that uh, even one uh, right. that causes an 18 to 30 something year old men, uh, we're, we're taking great risk by That's forcing right. our aviators and our special ops folks who are in those categories uh, to take this vaccine when it's not necessary uh, from a readiness perspective. You know, with the anthrax thing, we thought we were going to have anthrax spread all over the battlefield right. uh, and we needed to, to do something about it to protect our people. That's not what's happening here. That's right. That is not what's happening here. The science doesn't support it. Uh, and I'm glad you're doing the show. I can't wait to, I'll record that and watch it and put that out because uh, uh, we've been talking about that on the Stop Vax Passports Task Force for a while now, uh, the effect of, of this thing on readiness. And that's one of the areas that I've, I've told people, I said, I guarantee you they're talking. And I, I would they are. They are. Oh, yeah. They're you know, you and I know mess. as aviators, if your heart or your lungs are messed up by something, you're done. You're, right. done, you're done for the rest of your life. It's not just military service, but, those, you know, folks that are professional aviators, they want to fly as a civilian pilot, too, when they right. get out of the military uh, and be successful for the rest of their lives. And, and you're talking about forcing them to potentially have a high potential of having to give that up just to take a shot. That it'll be really interesting to see um, how this is how this is all adjudicated over the months and years ahead. I yeah. mean, if, if some of these people sustain mm -hmm. lifelong injuries or maybe even injuries uh, as a result of this vaccine that end their flying career, for example, I mean, mm -hmm. how, how these people get compensated moving forward. Uh, if they yeah. end up having to separate without their pension, how they're going to get compensated. I mean, they, yeah. There's a lot of things to be seen how this is all going to unfold in the in the months and years ahead. I, I just think I can't help but believe our senior military leaders who are currently in these positions will live with years of potentially regret at the decisions they were making. Uh, that's they're they're going to be in a real tough spot in the, in the years ahead as they reflect back on all of the potentially unforeseen or unintended consequences of these policy decisions, but. I think they're starting to see exactly what they've gotten themselves into, and it'll only be more clear with time. Luckily, this is a lot faster acting than the Agent Orange issue was, That's right. because a lot of those leaders died off before they started seeing the effect in the mass of the force uh, from that years later. But uh, I, I think you're right, and I hope you're right. Uh, and uh, I also, uh, I also think that uh, they won't only regret it, but uh, they'll they'll take actions in their own lives to hmm. try to try to fix what they've done. Yeah. You know, uh, at the end of the book, Matt, after you go through you know the things like the chaplain experience you had uh, with the military culture and what's happening, and you talk about how you know on social media these young enlisted people are are just espousing these extremist ideas. Mm -hmm. But there are extremist ideas that, that aren't being looked for, apparently. That's right. Uh, but when you get to the end of the book, end of the book you, you added a chapter uh, called The Wrath to Come. Uh, and I saw that show, part of the, most of that chapter uh, was, was about a transcript from a Tucker Carlson show. Mm -hmm. I saw that episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and, and uh, 
I'm not as smart as you, so I didn't have it well thought out, but it sure really hit me off. You know, I mean, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is not good. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the way he laid out the reactions he was seeing and everything. Before we close out, just just talk about that, the wrath to come a little bit, because I think people need to hear it. They need to hear that this is not just the U.S. Armed Forces uh, that's going to happen with our society if we don't get this ship turned around. That's right. Well, the purpose in including Tucker's, uh, the, the transcript of Tucker's monologue for that particular show, whenever that show was, was to put on display for the reader up front, beginning of that chapter, uh, the rhetoric that was being employed by the politician. Uh, and in this case, it was Democrat politicians against uh, the other half of the political spectrum in the country, the demonization in their rhetoric, the, uh, the the turning of their opponent into something that is inhuman uh, starts to sound very quickly like the kinds of totalitarian regime rhetoric ideology that we heard out of the 20th, the 20th century, Nazi Germany, communist regimes also. They tend to demonize the opposition, dehumanize the opposition, so that doing the unthinkable to the opposition begins to not be impossible. If you can start to divorce your conscience from the opposition as if they are somehow evil, as if they're not worthy of uh, an equal place or standing within society, then you can begin to talk about the things that are required to be done. I just read a quote, and then I went and fact-checked this myself, watched the video where Trudeau says this, but it was in December uh, just uh, just a month ago, uh, Trudeau in Canada had mm-hmm. had talked about the unvaxxed. And then he said, largely, they are misogynists and racists, which is totally not true. It's a leap. OK. <laughs> and then he, he asks a question. He says, we have to make a decision. How long are we willing to tolerate such people? That chain of rhetoric is Hitler-esque. When you start to talk like that as a leader of a country, uh, you make yourself an enemy of humanity. And yet there's an uncomfortable amount of people these days that don't simply, they simply don't bat an eyelash at that kind of rhetoric. And so it was important at the beginning of the chapter, that last chapter, The Wrath to Come, which is a a quote from the New Testament. Uh, Who who warned you to flee the wrath to come uh, as asked by John the Baptist? But you have to recognize that the rhetoric isn't all in vain. It's being used as a natural consequence of the path that we're on that leads to anger, men's hearts becoming cold, and eventually violence. Uh, History, I'm reluctant to say history proves things, but history does demonstrate patterns of human behavior. Now, the circumstances are always somewhat different, but human nature has been the same. Mm-hmm. And when people start to hate one another that way and to talk about one another that way in society, you don't have any kind of a semblance of a nation. You've got people who are so polarized as to hate one another and then to be willing to, to start to justify hurting other people. And so that's why I wrote that last chapter. It's that, look, if we don't get the ship turned around, to use your language or your analogy, mm-hmm. uh, then this does seem, historically speaking, inevitably to lead to violence. And it's already begun. We're getting 
we're getting a whiff of that with what we see in the news cycles over the past year. Fortunately, it hasn't erupted across the cities in our country, but um, I'll tell you based on some conversations I've had as I've spoken around the country, there are people, even good people who I think are politically aligned with me, let's say who I'm conservative, they're conservative. Mm -hmm. We have some overlap, but they are so angry they're willing to get violent. And yeah. everywhere I've spoken, I've said, that's not going to solve your problem right now is to turn on your, your neighbor or to turn on a fellow citizen and think that violence is going to solve your problem. Uh, I'm not saying they're not justified in their feeling. Uh, there's maybe something to that, but I don't think that it's the answer to our problems right now. And so I'm very concerned about the possibility that we get to a point as a society where we're so filled with anger, hatred, visceral emotion, that violence becomes a natural next step. And um, one of the things I point to, I'll just wrap up by saying this, one of the things I, I point to in, in the last chapter is that there's this great book that's terribly hard to get through um, called The Logic of Violence in Civil War by Stathis Kalivas. He's Greek. Mm. And he traces through the civil wars, primarily in the 20th century of various countries, many of which were brought about by Marxist uh, ideology, by the way. And yeah. these people recognize that things were getting bad. He interviews them uh, as a part of the writing of the book. They recognize things were getting very bad in the lead up to what became a civil war, but they've never anticipated it was going to turn into a war. And then nearly overnight, like a whirlwind, it sweeps them up all by surprise and everyone's killing. And mm -hmm. it lasts for how many ever months or years it lasts. And some of these survivors then he's interviewing all they can all they can remember is that we knew things were getting bad, but we didn't know they were getting this bad. And, and they were surprised by the madness that seemed to overcome society. Uh, neighbors killing one another. Uh, and so people, when, when it comes down to survival, when there's anger involved, when people's family members are caught up, when there's food involved and supply chain issues like we're seeing mount across the country right now, um, it takes very little, in fact, to turn humans violent. And yeah. Uh, I, I don't think many people really appreciate that, uh, but they need to appreciate it and they need to do everything in their power to avoid it. Yeah, and I think that's why more and more uh, people like me, like you, I mean, military officers, uh, I, mean, I don't know a military officer on the right, uh, on my political, uh, I, I don't even like to use the term right and left because hmm. I, I believe in American liberalism, which is not mm -hmm. this, this thing that Democrats do. That's right. Uh, uh, so... So people that believe like I do that are that are either on active duty or most of us are retired now, we we are constantly pushing back on people going, you don't you don't want to take this violent. That's, That's right. not something that you want to do. Uh, you want to see it, You know, you want to do everything you can, even if it means a national divorce of some sort, a peaceful one. Uh, you want to do everything you can to prevent this from going violent because if you think the American uh, uh, war between the states killed a lot of Americans, and we, I think that's the most mm -hmm. in any war we've been in, uh, with today's weaponry that's in the hands of the average American, it's going to be 10 times that. It'll be very bad. Uh, it'll be very bad, uh, and, uh, it, it, and your family probably won't survive it if you, if you instigate violence on this. Mm -hmm. uh, so the path... To success is not one of violence. Uh, every military person I know uh, says that. But I'll be honest with you, there are some Army officers that are fundraising 
for a leftist veterans organization called Vote Vets that that are pushing the insurrection theme and the racism theme and the subversion theme that president and president of the United States Biden even said, you're a subversive if you're opposed to my voting rights bill, which is not a voting (laughs) rights bill. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a federalization of all elections uh, bill and I oppose it. Uh, But, and it makes me angry uh, that I'm being called a subversive and a racist and, but it really gives me pause when I see two and three star army generals, retired generals signing fundraising letters uh, saying half the country are terrorists, insurrectionists, right. and subversives. That's that's concerning. Uh, and, and that will be where the violence comes from. It It'll is. Be some, some people get, just get so angry that they're going to take off. And I guarantee you it'll be on the left if it does come. It'll start from the left, and then and then those of us that are in the middle will have to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we don't want to go there. Uh, we want to do this the American way, which is resolve our our issues peacefully. But we have to do that based on the values that that the founders created the country on, uh, because that's the only thing that works. And I think that's what one of the most important things your book really points out. If somebody actually sits down and takes the time to read it, mm-hmm. Matt is that is America was, is, and in the future worth defending. That's right. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, but it's only because of those values. Uh, you know, uh, it's not because of the bad things the country's done. We've worked hundreds of years to get through those to get to our goal, which is the idea that all men are created equal and they have equality of opportunity. Uh, and, and I thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, I will I will share your book. I already have a couple times, uh, but uh, uh, tell people uh, one more time where they can find you on all your social media website. And when's your podcast going to start? Sure, uh, podcast is coming real soon. But you can sign up in advance and receive notification on MatthewLomire.com, uh, and uh, you'll get a notice when that podcast kicks off. Uh, and I, th- I think there's going to be some really big information that I'm able to disseminate uh, as early as episode one. So I don't think you're going to want to miss it. And you can also find uh, copies of my book there as well, MatthewLomire.com. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I'll close out the show here and uh, we'll talk in a second. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's an American that has sacrificed for his country. Uh, and, and I wish we had one around every corner behind every tree. And I think we do actually, but a lot of them are asleep. A lot of them are asleep. So, uh, you can see Matt's book, Irresistible Revolution, right over my right shoulder, get it on Amazon. Uh, he gave up everything to get this message out and the message is true. It's factual, uh, and it's the right thing to do. Uh, so let's support him. Uh, I'll share his podcast when he, when it comes out. Uh, I think there's going to be some really good info based on our discussions there. Uh, so until next week, I'm Rob Manus. God bless you all, and God bless the United States of America. <laughs>